and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. Why Ground Control Parenting? Because we're not trying to be helicopter parents, but we do need to be on the tarmac, that ground control crew, making sure our kids have what they need for a successful takeoff. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. My daughter and two sons are in their 20s, and I've been writing about parenting and education issues for more than a decade. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. I am so excited that for the first time, we have two guests today, the powerhouse couple of Michelle Miller-Morial and Mark Morial. Michelle, a national correspondent for CBS News, currently serves as co-host on the Saturday edition of CBS This Morning. She served as a substitute anchor on CBS News Weekend Edition and CBS News Up to the Minute. Her husband, Mark Morial, is the current president and CEO of the National Urban League, the nation's largest historic civil rights and urban advocacy organization. He's a leading voice on the national stage in the battle for jobs, education, housing, and voting rights equity. Before leading the National Urban League, Mark served as the highly successful and popular mayor of New Orleans, as well as the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Mark is a native of New Orleans, and Michelle hails from Los Angeles, but they've been on the East Coast since 2002, when Mark came to New York to lead the Urban League. Mark has a daughter, Kemma, who is 38, and he and Michelle have a son, Mason, 18, and a daughter, Margo, who is 14. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Michelle and Mark. Hey, thank, thank you. Hey, thank you. <laughs> So great to have you guys here. So, Mark, we go so way far back. It's yeah. not even funny as we were college classmates. And it has been so great to watch you and your amazing career and to remember that I knew you back in the day. When, <laughs> we, was, were being, when we were being parented, right? Or we were resisting being parented. When we were resisting <laughs> being parented. That's right. <laughs> I'm excited to talk with you both about your parenting perspectives and how you came to them. So let me start by saying that in the discussion of parenting black children, I want to focus on what works. And you guys are two examples of busy public figures that are, are raising smart, confident, grounded black children. And so I want to start by getting a sense of how each of you grew up. So we're going to kind of focus on the children that you were before we talk about the children that you have. So Michelle, um, tell me briefly, how, where did you grow up? I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. Um, my grandmother and my father raised me. Um, and uh, my father didn't live in the house with us, but he was in and out of the house all the time. Um, and my grandmother, I guess she was about 72 or three when I came around. So I was raised by this very, um, <laughs> she was a stalwart presence in my life. There was no coffee, no alcohol, no cigarettes, <laughs> nothing like that. Um, I was with her for, I guess I would say up until the age of 12. Uh, and, and she, she became ill and she moved to Alabama with my aunt Edna. And then a friend of the family moved in and, uh, helped to take me from, age 12 to age 17 when I went off to college. So I know that your father was a surgeon and a prominent community leader. He was the first on the scene to care for RK when he was shot in the Ambassador Hotel. And, and so you had a father who was pretty prominently known in the community. And you had a childhood 
shaped by a lot of transitions. So you grew up in South Central, but you kind of, you floated in between the, the world of your neighborhood and your grandmother and your father's world. You you had a, um, a childhood filled with love, but there was a lot of moving around or a lot of Michelle moving around, meaning. Yes, <laughs> there was, there was a lot of transition. That's a good way to put it. Um, I was the child. He, he had to make fit into um, the life that, that I was born into. I'm being raised by him, himself and his mother. And he, um, he was a surgeon. He was on the city council of Compton. He was also on the school board at some point. He was, uh, actively involved in, uh, the civil rights movement. And, and, all, and, and at the time, albeit I did not know it at the time, he was also very present in my school life. He was the president of my PTA in junior high school. So I transitions and pivots are something I'm used to. Although, you know, until you said it, I wouldn't have really put it in those terms, but I guess that is something I grew up, I was forced to learn how to do very early. It's mm -hmm. never easy. Um, and it's something we, we have our kids, we've raised them in a pretty stable household. Mm -hmm. Um, They've gone to the same school from preschool all the way through eighth grade um, for the most part. So, you know, their life is very different from mine. And it's very interesting, you know, how they've been um, able to handle the transitions that they have had to pivot between. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I, I just want to I want to stay with your transitions um, for just a minute. In that um, everyone should know that in early June, you did this amazing, amazing piece for CBS News. And everybody should, as soon as they finish listening to this podcast, stop what they're doing and listen to find it on, on um, the Internet. And um, so so we all learned from that piece that, as you said, you're raised by your father. Um, it was an interracial um uh, you were born of a, of a black father and white mother, and and your mother uh, left the family very early. Didn't and doesn't really acknowledge the the um, the parentage. How did you find balance in in all of that transition? I mean, it sounds tough to an outsider, but whenever I've asked you before, I understood that to describe your childhood, it was it sounds like it was um, uh, you know a lot of transition, but it, but not traumatic. So it was an interracial relationship between uh, my father and mother, who my mother was Hispanic. So <laughs> she she is she was Hispanic, but she she had white written in her her birth certificate. So I just wanted oh, okay. to make that clarification. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, but but secondly, you know, growing up without a mother is in your life is, is difficult because, you know, there are norms, right? And so part of what makes racism so insidious is that it, it applied normal as being white. It does. It just, mm -hmm. the norm is white. And, and, you know, so many of us aren't the norm, whether it's racial or, or in personality or type or, mm -hmm. or, or family situation. So, um, for me, yeah, it, it was, I, I would say I had a tough time, uh, coming to terms with, you know, who I was, where I fit, you know, I'm, I, you know, as I said, I, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, but 
you know, or times I, I would go visit my cousin for a birthday party in Beverly Hills, or mm-hmm. I was off on a trip with my dad at the medical conferences that he would go to. Um, and so I had a wide berth in terms of exposure to different lifestyles. Um, and certainly to different mother figures in my life because I had many of those as well. And so I think the older that I, I became and the more experiences that I had, I started to see how more people didn't come from these quote unquote normal situations. Mm-hmm. And those oftentimes who did come from normal situations, it was, it was more difficult for them to transition, more difficult for them to deal with hardships, more difficult for them to emotionally uh, stabilize after they've had a gut punch. So absolutely. From what I've heard from you about growing up, it seems as if you were able to teach yourself some really valuable coping skills. You, You made friends, you found ways to be comfortable in tough situations, you figured out what it would take to get through them, and you developed a really strong sense of independence, which seems to have helped you carry through. That's inspirational for darn sure. Um, because we have two people on this call. <laughs> I don't want to forget the heart is still there. It's funny because I don't usually get this hey, much time before he jumps in. I'm having fun. <laughs> I'm just, I'm like, I'm listening to the podcast. I'm just, it's cool. It's all right. I've been talking all day. So Mark, I, I want to um, ask you some similar questions about your childhood in the sense that uh, what you and Michelle actually shared was a father who was prominent. Um, your father had a lot of firsts. He was the first black law graduate in Louisiana State University, and he was the first black member of Louisiana State Legislature since Reconstruction, first black juvenile court judge, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals judge, and the first black mayor of New Orleans elected in 1977. You know, when I was growing up, my father mostly was a civil rights lawyer. His political career began, I guess I was about 10 or 11 years old. So I remember, you know, his work as president of the NAACP and uh, his work as a civil rights lawyer and activist uh, in those days. And and obviously he got elected mayor when I was at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, my mother was also extremely prominent in the community, a teacher uh, and a civic activist involved in, you know, 10,000 different things. And she was a a community organizer who founded various organizations. And my parents, uh, you know, were, were very active in the community. I grew up in a big five. There were five of us in a small house mm-hmm. uh, until I was uh, 15 or 16 years old. Uh, I became, uh, you know, very independent at a young age because when I was uh, in fifth grade, I changed schools. I left the neighborhood school and went to a sort of an exclusive school uh, called Christian Brothers School. And and when I went there, I was the first black student to go there. I mean, there were two black students in the school. And the entire time I was there, I I was the only black person in my class. They had an accelerated track and I was on the accelerated track. And so I was pretty much living in this all white world for school, but growing up in the all black neighborhood where I grew up called Pontchartrain Park. And, you know, I was an athlete. So uh, my life when I was nine, 10, 11 years old revolved around the public playground in our neighborhood. I played basketball. I played football. That's where I, I, any free moment I had when I wasn't going to school or studying, that's what I did. So I spent a lot of time 
with my father and my mother going to meetings and rallies and all sorts of things kids hated to do at that time. But I realized it was building some sensibilities in my DNA and it was programming me towards a certain type of career, even though I didn't know it at the time. My parents were, you know, they were frontline, they were integrationists. They were fighting segregation. And so while, you know, their whole thing was they wanted us to walk through doors that they didn't go through. Mm. And that's why we were programmed, you know, to go to the Ivy League. My sister went to Yale. I went to Penn. My brother went to the University of Chicago. We were kind of programmed that way because the whole thing was, you know, we're fighting for opportunity for you all. And you all are going to go. We want our kids to be able to be themselves and I guess have the best of what we can give them. Mm-hmm. But to not be overly consumed by it, you know, you you probably right. face the same challenges with your own children. I mean, you want to, you know, you, you're trying to give them everything that you can give them, but you mm-hmm. want them to be independent and self-sufficient, have a sense of who they are, you know, yeah. have a focus of their And, you know, that's that's the constant, uh, you know, constant balance. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I'm going to get to your kids and I want to talk a little bit more about them. But right before we get there, I'm I'm really intrigued. And this is the first time, actually, I heard this story of you um, integrating these schools and, and your mm-hmm. parents being strong supporters of of this concept of integration. What's interesting to me is that they managed to give you, you know, many kids in that situation when they are one, the one black child in the room, it, it, it can be traumatic. And we see now a lot of uh, young people in these private schools and boarding schools are really um, talking a lot about how difficult it's been for them to to be um, in these predominantly white environments. But it sounds like you had this really strong core of family with a plan. And what was balancing this knowledge that you were going to go off into the, the, the zone and, and, and deal with all this sort of uh, contention from your classmates, what was balancing that was going off with your father or your mom and, and hearing what, people were doing to try to combat it. It's so, it's interesting that you got, it sounds like the grounding they were giving you was good armor against what you were dealing with at school. Is that fair? I think part of it was my parents were strivers, you know, and, 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 and they were always like, Hey, you know, got to pave the way for others. And, mm-hmm. you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta hang in here because it's not going to be easy. And, I mean, it was sort of like that kind of a mindset. It was sort of a, you know, I, I guess in some ways it was a little bit of a, of a, of a warrior mindset. Yeah, right? yeah, sounds like <laughs> that it. You were, that you were conditioned uh, to have, you know, it makes you stronger if mm-hmm. you could cope and if you don't allow it to uh, sort of mess with your mind. So um, now I want to move towards to talk about your kids, the kids that um, you mm-hmm. have raised from and and they they face what what um mark you face and and the shell you face to a degree as well but mark you really faced being growing up under the shadow of mm-hmm. your very well-known parents and so you've got your children have a mom who is uh, on the air and you know very much a public figure and a public face and dad who is on the air and 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 traveling the country and So, but it seems to me that you guys have really, really worked hard and successfully figured out ways to not let that define them. 
Um, you've talked about two things that I want to ask you about them, about how you foster their independence and how you uh, you really encourage their intellectual curiosity. Um, Mark, you talked about, you know, in terms of fostering their independence, you are very sensitive to not trying to step in um, the way of your children, take some of the shine away from them if they're getting attention. Yeah, I've been really, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, conscious of that because, you know, I think part of it is when you're growing up and you're a kid and you're vulnerable and 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 you want to be defined. You know, I, my my son would say this all the time, Dad. I just want to be normal, right? Mm -hmm. It was his way of saying, you know, let me have some space. And 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 I, you know, uh, uh, just felt like. You know, from the time he he started, you know that we didn't. If if the if the kids found out who his parents were, it's fine, right? Nobody's hiding anything, but you're not pushing it into prominence. You didn't want him to be. You don't want them to be defined by who their parents are. Right. You don't want everybody right. they meet to say. And I think that that's one of the advantages, quite quite honest, that we grew up. Raising them here, had mm -hmm. we raised them in New Orleans, it would have been far more difficult for them to maintain that level of that level of independence because everywhere they would have gone, the name would have triggered, "Oh, you're right. so and so." Right, right, and right. We've tried really hard. I think it's important for parents to, no matter who, to, to really you know respect. It's kind of it's such a balancing act: the level of independence and the level of them wanting to have their own identity. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I would have never, I would have never, never even, never even considered the son naming him after me, right? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, not naming just because I'm like, okay, he needs his own identity, and his own identity is his own name, right? And uh, and so we've maintained that, and I think Mason's been, um, you know, I think he's sent us messages at times. At times, he's you know, to give him his space and give him his room. It's like everybody doesn't need to know who you guys are. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, okay, son, right, you do your own thing. And if they find out and if they know, they know. If they don't know, they don't need to know. It's up to you, right? You you handle it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the benefit of you guys having experienced this is that some parents might react to that by taking some kind of offense because they don't understand why a child who's has the advantage of, of a prominent name or, or association with a mom and a dad who do exciting things would want to step away from that. But by virtue of your being a second generation, it, it, right. it, you can see. So I that, can understand it. And yeah. I don't have, because I know what I know is that in the, in the process of maturation that a child becomes a teenager, becomes a young adult that over time, right. The manner in which it functions as an asset on their own terms mm -hmm. will develop, right? Mm -hmm. What you don't want them to do, and you sometimes would see this, is become resentful. Right. They want to kind of run off mm -hmm. and not be associated, right? But right. then you also don't want them to become a total dependent <laughs> where everything is, you know, let me let my parents pick up the phone and make a call. Let me let my parents handle things for us. So it's really a balance because you want to do for your kids. 
mm-hmm. and you want your kids to be better off than you are. Right. That's no. natural. And that's, and so we, you know, we've tried to really, really do this balance. Normalcy is trying to give your kids the advantage and also allow them to maintain a level of normalcy is, you know, is, is the trick and the balance that we've, we've worked through, you know, over the years. Yeah, no. No, there's no formula for it. There's no, there's no perfect, perfect way to do it. And a lot depends, you know, on your kids. Look, we had great childcare. Uh, the person who's helped us with our kids has been with us now for 15 years and, and, and has been really, really incredible. Like a member of the, you know, a member of the family. And I, mm-hmm. found, I found that that being up here when we first got here and not having any extended family, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't realize like, not having extended family would be so much of an impact because I'm so used to being around family and extended family. Right. Everybody's all over the place. And so there's always this protective cocoon around your kids, right? Even when they're Mm -hmm, not with mm -hmm, you. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. There, so a a lot of, of what you said makes so much sense. And, and it's important to acknowledge that caregivers are really important uh, part of of the formula, and they can be family member caregivers or people that you hire to care for your children. But they are it, they're an important part of of making sure that that because you are are busy working um, away a lot, that they have the stability and the the um, right. Because we you know we both travel, and what we try to do, we you know we maintained it for a very long time. We said, look. Let's try, number one, not to travel at the same time if we can mm-hmm. control. It. And then another thing I decided to do when I got here, I mean, it, it, I couldn't do it when I was in elected office, certainly could do it when I was mayor. I decided to literally not do public appearances and travel on the weekends. Right. Ah, mm-hmm. So I decided I was going to take the weekends, you know. During the week, the days could be long. You know, you get home at 10, 11 o'clock at night sometimes. Uh, but, but, but try to take the weekends and Michelle was working on the weekends, mm-hmm. uh, when we first got here and she, and, got, and she still is. <laughs> she's back working on the weekends. Yeah. Again. So, you know, I wanted to make sure I was, you know, present, you know, on the weekends mm-hmm. and, and, and so, you know, I rarely travel on the weekends. My travel is a little bit more, uh, planned out and regular than Michelle's. Michelle can sometimes have travel on the spur of the moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, you know, we've had to work around. What a great caregiver has been great. And, but, you know, we've had to, you know, we've had to try to work through it. And now that our kids are old, you know, I said, yeah, Michelle, they're old. They don't even want to have anything to do with us anymore, right? <laughs> they go do their own thing, right? They got their own agenda. They have their own friends. They have their own places they want to go. And it's like, oh, hi, mom. Hi, Dad. Yeah, where are you going today? What are you doing now? <laughs> so, Michelle, I wanted to ask you about in this the intellectual curiosity that I know you champion in your children. You have talked about uh, how they've challenged you and they've helped you in your work, actually, by sort of uh, asking you the hard questions <laughs> and and giving you direction. Well, Is that fair? Well, it's funny because Mason, although he challenges us both, 
I think he gives it to me more so than he gives it to his dad. And Margot gives it to her father more so than <laughs> he gives it to me. But the two things that I... Yeah, ooh, Lord, you should have been at the house the other day. Oh, my goodness. Go ahead, Mark. No, but uh, yeah, and then you should tell a story of how Mesa challenged yes, you to take no, the, whole, was, the whole story, the whole story with your dad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it emanated, so this is what, it, it emanated from Mason, and it, it, this okay, is what happened. It was, I, I let me just it. tell you. Let me set it up. Oh, I was uh, looking on a YouTube YouTube because uh, you know Mark. Ken, no, looking you up Kennedy that, speeches. Mark, no, that's not what you were doing. No, I was looking up. You Kennedy were listening speech. to because Mark listens to speeches all the time. Prominent people great orders. And he happened to have Robert F. Kennedy on and both children, yeah. which was a rarity, were in his office. And, you know, Mark, Mark's family looms large because, you know, his mother and his, his siblings are around the children. And my, my father's been, he died before we even got married. So, um, I, I, I said, let me discuss a little piece of, of their grandfather from, you know, my side. And so I, I said, you know, Mason and Margo, this man who's speaking, your grandfather, Ross, had a very special relationship with him. And I proceeded to tell them how he had campaigned with him. And, and the night that he was assassinated, my, my father was the first to get to him. And Mason looked at me with this, this, this absolute look of puzzlement and disbelief and said, Mommy, I don't believe you. You're going to have to prove it. <laughs> and I was so outdone that he would call into question my integrity <laughs> that I immediately ran to the internet because there was only one piece of evidence I ever had. And it was a jet magazine with my dad on the cover of it with like Rosie Greer and Rayford Johnson, yeah. two athletes and my father, the surgeon. And um, and it read something like uh, the black men who, uh, you know, helped RFK. And so I had never seen anything on the Internet about my dad. The first thing that comes up is this picture from Life magazine that he's nowhere in the picture. Mm. The second thing that pops up and this I got goosebumps was in the FBI report and the LAPD report, which I'd never seen before because I think that they were just released because it was around the right, point. It was on the internet, right. It had just been released. Um, it said, in exchange for a ride back from the hospital to the Ambassador Hotel, two CBS News reporters agreed. Uh, my father agreed to an interview with two CBS News reporters. And my mouth fell open and I wow. showed it to Mark and it ended up being this amazing story of my father's, you know, a real crucial moment in his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so often those are hidden histories. And so I, because it's such an unbelievable story um, and all the things that came out of it were incredible. The fact that my dad, the, that, the fact of the matter, the man that my dad did say, because there were five other people who were shot in addition to Robert F. Kennedy that night, none of whom died. Two of whom, there were two others my dad helped. And one that he rode in, in the hospital, to the hospital with, uh, was this man by the name of Paul Schrade. And Paul Schrade was still living. He'd been shot in the head. He mm. was lucid, but 
he's the man who there's a whole arc of the story that comes out of what he was able to do. And it, it just, it's spun in a way that no one could have ever imagined. And it moves so many people that it is like the marker. Yeah, and I don't think, my tide turned right. at CBS. If Mason hadn't challenged Michelle, we wouldn't, have, we probably would not have started digging. Right. Right. So we start digging on the internet and finding all sorts of things on the internet. And then Michelle went and found the tape at the C in the CBS archive. So if Mason hadn't challenged us, it would have been just a passing conversation, and, passing you know, family conversation. It, it is a real tribute to you guys as parents that you responded to your child's challenge. He was what? How old was he? Nine. Nine? You're nine years old. Your yeah. nine-year-old challenge, not by taking such offense that you were angry, not by um, suggesting that he didn't know what he was talking about, but <laughs> by respecting his question, allowing him to challenge you, and it resulted in, in an amazing, an amazing turn of events. And you modeled for him what you do when you need to find an answer. Or you modeled for him. He was able to see that by asking a question. You could, and, and you ask your parent a question that they don't know the answer to, or you suggest that they need to get a better answer. You watch, he watched his mother go get a better answer. So not only did you model um, a great parenting skill of respecting what he said, you also showed him that when somebody asks the question, there's a way to answer it in a way that you can come back with the facts. And the next time he's in a situation where he's challenged, he'll know what to do. So uh, that is such a great, great parenting yeah. story. So it, I mean, well, it, one of our techniques, one of our techniques too, Carol has been, you know, we, and we do this all the time. If we're in having a discussion, if someone comes up on TV and like, who's that, you know, like, well, let's look it up right now. Let's look it up right now. Uh, let's go to the internet right now. What does this word mean? Let's look it up right now. Who is this person? Let's mm -hmm. look it up right now. I mean, yeah. that's kind of how we, you know, family, we look it up right now because we're going to get the answer right now. Well, I don't know who that is. And, uh, you know, my kids, I mean, Margot rags me about no, not knowing who these little uh, hip hop musicians are sometimes, <laughs> right? I'm like, I don't know who these people are, but I want to know, right? I want to learn. Just tell me who they are, please. Well, you know, on that point about looking things up, I, my family and my kids are in their twenties. We do that now. If we don't know with sort of Google, it is like the, the phrase that happens in all of our conversations. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about having devices at dinner, you know, I, I know that it's important to stay to have device free time with your children. But I advocate for have a device nearby because you can really grow the conversation if you have some access to. I mean, remember, yes. we had to look things up in encyclopedias and they were dated. We now have ready access to instant information. Oh, it's, so it's amazing. Pretty amazing. It's amazing. And it yeah. makes you it makes it's empowering. It really is. If, if it's used well, it's really empowering. So listen, you guys, I, I will wrap up here. But as, as you know, before you go, I have to we have to have a little bit of the GCP bonus round. Um, three quick questions. And I guess you each will have to answer. You could, the, the, the first one you each have to give me one answer each. The second one, I'll let you answer together. So the first one is, give me your favorite poem. Invictus. 
Ah, out of the night that covers me. <laughs> Black as a pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be. <laughs> For my unconquerable soul. <laughs> In the firm clutch of circumstance, I have not wits nor quite a lot. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody. It is bloody, but I'm bothered. And that is not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the I master, am the master of, my of my fate. I am, I am the, the captain, captain of my soul. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. That is a great poem. Okay, no pressure, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I can't. I don't have this one memorized, but generally speaking, my fa- I can tell you who my favorite poet is, and that would be okay. Paul Longstenbar. Because, ah. I mean, not only he was such an eloquent, um, he had such an eloquent use or oh, agility with the English, the proper English language, but then he <laughs> gave such flight to the, 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 the vernacular, the, 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 the old slave dialect. Because um, mm-hmm. that was, the, the, you know, he he acknowledged it one, and then he gave it purpose, and he gave it voice and power. So he's my favorite poet. So you know, just a minute on uh, a second on Paul Lawrence Dunbar. As you're talking, it occurs to me he's one of the earliest code switchers because he definitely had it. That is a great way to say it. Yeah, he yeah. definitely was. Yeah. He was. I mean, and I don't know. You know, did he do it? to empower his people or was he, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'd like to think he did. Mm -hmm. Um, So would I, so would I, but we can look it up, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Google it, Mark (laughs) Morial. Okay. Your favorite children's books. I'll give you each one. One, it can either be one you grew up with or one you liked reading to your kids. I am tired of living in a house. Oh, I don't know that one. That's a great book. That's a great title. Oh my gosh. It was my favorite book. So I think it sort of developed my sense of adventure and, and wanting to live in different places. Wow. That's great. Mark, do you have a favorite children's book? Green Eggs and Ham. Ah, Sam I am. Yeah. You know, I always use it. I use the analogy uh, when I'm trying to get people to get unstuck to try something, you know, I use it, you know, as an illustration in business and leadership when people are resistant to some change or resistant to trying something new, like it's like green eggs and ham, you know, <laughs> just try it. Let's try it. Let's see. We might like it. If we don't like it, we'll throw it away. Okay. Your favorite film or TV parent, like who do you, when you think back on TV shows, like who did you want to be? <laughs> Florida Evans. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, mine, no mine, comes, mine comes from a black exploitation movie. I mean, who didn't want to be John Shaft, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> he wasn't a parent, though. Did he have kids? I mean, you know, I'm trying to think, God, because, you know. <sighs> well, in the most recent version of Shaft, he was a parent. So we'll give That's you that. True. Okay, we'll, we'll let you have John Shaft then. <laughs> you can have that. So listen, guys, I want to thank you so, so much. This has oh, been a really, really great conversation. I yeah, love talking to you guys. Thank you. And I'm sure parents listening are able to take away so yeah. much from your experiences and your advice. So I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more.
If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcasts and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.